Everyone knows John Calvin was a great theologian. But did you know he was more than a theologian? Did you know how he has influenced our schools, governments, our very way of life? Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review The Legacy of John Calvin by David Hall, 112 pages published by PNR Publishing in June 2008, available in Amazon Kindle for $7.99 and available in Logos for free, free for January. Now, who is the writer of today's book? David Hall. This is what Amazon says. Dr. David W. Hall has served as the senior pastor of the historic Midway Presbyterian Church, PCA, in Powder Springs, Georgia, since 2003. Is there, is David Hall uh, qualified to write on John Calvin? Amazon continues to say, I quote, In addition to his work as executive director of Calvin 500, his Calvin 500 series contains the following works, The Legacy of John Calvin, Calvin in the Public Square, Calvin and Commerce, Preaching Like Calvin, Calvin and Culture, Tributes to John Calvin, and Theological Guide to Calvin's Institutes. End quote. <laughs> Having written so many books on Calvin, we are confident that if anyone could write an authoritative book on John Calvin, David Hall would be the man. Or... He could have written so many books on John Calvin that everywhere he goes, he sees John Calvin even though he shouldn't. Well, let's go into that. Um, the book is divided into three parts. Part 1, 10 ways modern culture is different because of John Calvin. Part 2, John Calvin, a life worth knowing. Part 3, tributes, measuring a man after many generations. Let's start with part 1. Listeners to this podcast should be somewhat familiar with John Calvin. You know him as the theologian, the man who wrote the Institutes, the, which is the bedrock of the Reformed uh, faith, the systematic theological framework that uh, we know and love or perhaps hate. <laughs> Other than writing theology, what else did John Calvin do? Can't think of anything? Well, here are 10 ways, well, I'm not going to list down all 10, but here are some of the ways in this book um, that describe how your life is all the better because of John Calvin. Did you go to school? That's thanks to Calvin. In Geneva, uh, Calvin set up the free public school and seminary, and according to a historian quoted in this book, these became, I quote, the forerunners of modern public education. Do you know of any volunteer societies? Well, they might have helped you or someone you know. And that's thanks to Calvin and his deacons who cared for the poor, the orphans, the elderly, and the sick. I quote from this book, This ecclesiastical institution was a precursor to the voluntary societies of the 19th and 20th centuries in the West. End quote. Do you know what is a senate? Senators in the Senate, they have a seat in government. Well, Calvin and other commentators uh, studied the Bible. They studied how Jethro advised Moses on how to govern a nation. And Calvin concluded that what worked for Moses and Israel 
would also work for John Calvin and Geneva. Thus, the Senate was established in Geneva, and this idea apparently reached America. Uh, due to John Calvin's um, discovery or, or able to uh, implement it in Geneva. So as the today's writer David Hall says, I quote, with this idea of limited government, Calvin altered the trajectory of governance. Wow. So we have limited government because of what John Calvin has done in Geneva. In the chapter titled Decentralized Politics, the Republic, we have we see that we have a lot more to thank John Calvin for. I quote, Many ideas that began with Calvin's Reformation in Geneva and later became part of the fabric of America were cultivated and crossbred in the 17th century. Customs now taken for granted, like freedom of speech, assembly, and dissent, uh, were extended as Calvin's Dutch, British, and Scottish disciples refined these ideas, end quote. Now, with this illustrious list of contributions to, modern, to the modern world, I was surprised that we don't have John Calvin to thank for sliced bread and the internet and everything else. In part two, we have a short biography of Calvin, which is divided into four sections. Calvin's life, Calvin's friendships, Calvin's death, and epilogue. If you are yet to be persuaded on the giant who is John Calvin, David Hall quotes 19th century Harvard historian George Bancroft, who, I quote, traced the living legacy of Calvin among the Plymouth Pilgrims, the Huguenot uh, settlers of South Carolina, and the Dutch colonists in Manhattan, concluding, he that will not honor the memory and respect the influence of Calvin knows but little of the origin of American liberty. End quote. Later, we read that the world-renowned German historian Leopold von Ranke reached the conclusion that, I quote, John Calvin was virtually the founder of America. End quote. So, a Frenchman founded America. And how did that Frenchman, Frenchman manage to do that? Well, we hope to find out in this part two, uh, which describes the life and death, the life and work and death of John Calvin. So uh, David Hall gives a standard portrait of Calvin. We have his early life, how his father sent him to study law, because that's where the money was. Then a thunderclap. The Reformation happened. Calvin left France and eventually arrived in Geneva. He didn't want to stay in Geneva, but he was spiritually bullied by William Carroll to stay. So he stayed. Then he refused to offer communion to some people, and he had good reasons not to, and the city council exiled Calvin. But three years later, those who opposed Calvin fell away. And Geneva insisted, well, the people who were left um, insisted, Geneva, uh, insisted that Calvin return to continue the good work he did there. So he did. And he famously preached exactly where he left off three years ago. <laughs> that picture always just uh, 
makes me laugh. I mean, as if nothing happened in that three years. He just continued where he stopped. And uh, in part two, we read how he uh, helped to build up the church, the city, the public school and seminary, the printers, the economy, and more. We read about his friends, uh, who's who of the Reformation. John Calvin was not a loner. He probably has more friends than you and I. In his later years, Calvin was taken ill, uh, but that did not stop him from working, which is amazing because they had no modern painkillers, uh, but he manages to produce great works of literature, making great contributions to theology, while most of us spend our days thinking of a comeback in Twitter. Then John Calvin's life ends, and we go to the epilogue, where um, what I expected to, to see was how Calvin's disciples went on to continue the good work. I expected to read how they shaped the religious, political, social, and economic landscape of Geneva, Europe, the world. I expected a brief sketch of how John Calvin raised up disciples, who raised up other disciples, who then somehow contributed to the founding of America. Because that was what he mentioned in the beginning. Um, that's what I expected, but what I got instead in the epilogue was a character study. Actually, it reads like an eulogy. It extols what Hall considers Calvin's chief virtue, namely humility. Humility, not perseverance or depravity, or <laughs> but humility. And it's a, it's a good eulogy, um, so, but I think if Calvin was as humble as described here, he would probably protest that we think so much of him. Um, I don't know. I mean, I still think that the epilogue should have briefly traced through the lives of Calvin's disciples. That would be a better, that would be in fitting with the theme of the book. So I think it's a missed opportunity over here. I think it's, he assumes that when we, if he just mentions the pilgrims, the Plymouth pilgrims or the Puritans, then we would be able to connect the dots. But not all of us are as familiar with history, uh, especially not political history or theological history. So I could not trace it through. But um, that mystery is not uh, answered or addressed in uh, part two, and it's also not addressed in part three. In part three, we have tributes. The purpose of this section is, I quote, to illustrate that Calvin is esteemed by many evangelicals from differing traditions, end quote. And that, quote, the passage of time and breath of acclaim is another measure of Calvin's contribution, end quote. So we have lots of tributes over here. We have tributes from Baptists, Spurgeon, John Piper, Stephen Lawson, Anglicans, uh, J.I. Packer, J.C. Rao, Independents. We have uh, John MacArthur, Methodist, John Wesley, and a surprising note from a Roman Catholic, uh, Alexandria Ganoxi. So we have uh, people giving tributes from all over the place, from different traditions across time. So that does uh, fulfill the purpose that he mentions, but part three is still the weakest part of the book. And uh, they need a good editor for this part. Uh, the portions are uneven. The tributes from Spurgeon just go on and on, while Stephen Lawson would be better off not having his name as a subheading. 
because all the section says is a very short paragraph. All it says is that Stephen Lawson wrote a book as a tribute on Calvin's preaching, but it doesn't tell us what does that tribute actually is. It doesn't actually describe the tribute or what aspect of John Calvin was so great. So this tells us that he wrote a book. Um, and that's the weird thing. Uh, all the tributes here pay tribute to Calvin the theologian or Calvin the preacher, um, but they don't describe or pay tribute to Calvin the school builder or Calvin the senate starter or Calvin the republican. If Charles Spurgeon had said, look at America, they have no king thanks to John Calvin. Now, if Spurgeon had said that, then that would be something that would be in keeping with the theme of the book. But nope, they are all saying great things about Calvin's uh, theology, predestination, the elect, and so on. Things that Calvin is rightly uh, famous for. The tribute from the Roman Catholic um, was a bit disappointing because all it says is that John Calvin is superior to Martin Luther and that he had his own mind. He was not blindly copying everybody else. That's a very lame compliment. I mean, is this something that you would go around saying that, you know, people say that I'm smarter than some other guy and I have my own mind? It's not really a great tribute. You know what would make a good Roman Catholic tribute? A harsh condemnation or, a, you know, a, a, some sort of million-dollar bounty, a, death sentence or something. Uh, Pope Leo X once described Martin Luther as a wild boar in God's garden. Now, if there was a condemnation or a bounty on Calvin's head, that would be a public relations win for Calvin, just for singling him out. If the Roman Catholic Church had singled him out as public enemy number one, in today's world, that would get John Calvin a million followers, a million likes within hours. All right, so... The Roman Catholic tribute is, an, is a non-tribute as far as I'm concerned. And so let's look at the book as a whole. This book is part of the Calvin 500 series. I know that, so I'm very aware of that. So perhaps my criticisms here are unfair because they are addressed in the other books. But as it is, this is the only book I read and it is a mess. It is a good book for people who love Calvin and you can go no wrong with anything that has Calvin and his contributions. And perhaps someone who wants to know another part of Calvin. So they know him as a theologian and they want to you know, get a bit of spice about maybe the man behind the books, the, whether he built schools and so on. Uh, but it's not so good for people who have no overly fond feelings for Calvin. I mean, I, I respect the guy, but I'm not like, whoa, I need to read another book on Calvin. And uh, I'm just skeptical of the grand claims made in the book. John Calvin as the virtual founder of America, that's the first. I mean, there are many others that would lay some claim to be the intellectual or spiritual inspiration for the founding of America. But I don't think John Calvin comes up in people's minds. I don't think he would be in the list of claimants. And now, now, 
Perhaps, perhaps that is what today's book is for. The fact that nobody thinks of John Calvin is a travesty when they should. Okay, so this book is meant to right a wrong. But the book doesn't make the case. Sure, there are historians who say John Calvin, founder of America, all right. There are experts who say that his limited government has changed, uh, altered the trajectory of governance, all right. But how did they reach their conclusions? I want more than someone say, just saying that uh, America's founders were influenced by Puritans, the Puritans were influenced by Calvin, ergo the founders were influenced by Calvin. That seems to be the logic because they they, he doesn't give us the other dots for us to connect them. So in that sense, it is uh, quite frustrating because I would like to know more, I would like to be convinced. For example, schools. Calvin did not invent schools. David Hall never makes such a preposterous claim. But he did say in this book that these schools are forerunners of modern public schools. I ask, in what way? What was Calvin's contribution? Did he design the syllabus? Did he teach? Did he cast a vision, raise the funds, laid the first brick? If the only thing he did was um, making it tuition-free, I'm not sure whether that is really makes him the forerunner of modern public schools. I mean, if someone visited the school and said, I would like to build exactly the same one back home, and he went home and built a whole nation full of Calvin schools, then that is very straightforward. Uh, he has actually made a big difference. But we don't know the unique aspects of Calvin school or an academy, and I would argue, even though I don't have the facts uh, with me, that they are schools, even tuition-free schools, that have existed before Geneva in other countries. I could be wrong in this, but having said that, this book doesn't um, give me the facts and figures to um, tell me otherwise. Hall gives Calvin also, uh, some credit for Republican, republicanism which is the system of government where the leader is not a hereditary king, but an elected representative from the people. The thing is, I'm not sure John Calvin himself would want to lay claim on republicanism. Now, John Calvin was trained as a lawyer. So let's take a courtroom scenario. Imagine that it was a criminal offense to have significantly contributed to the founding of America. I'm sure there are many countries in the world who would love to criminalize the founding of America. Now, imagine that John Calvin was resurrected from the dead to answer for his crime. The question I put to you is, would there be enough evidence for the jury to convict John Calvin? Based on this book, no it would be easy for John Calvin to defend himself by saying that he was too far away from the events of the founding of America to have any meaningful influence on the founders. Now, Calvin can concede that he did establish a limited government in Geneva, but ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Geneva is not America in size or scope. 
there are plenty of other people who made a bigger impact in that sense. Therefore, unless the prosecutor has something more substantial than some experts here say, any jury would easily acquit Calvin of the charge. Now, just for comparison, if it was a criminal offence to have significantly contributed to reform theology, then there is no escape for John Calvin. His words, his books, his actions, his disciples, they are all evidence stacked up against him and he doesn't need to say anything because he is definitely convicted of that crime of not just contributing but probably establishing the framework for the Reformed faith. So that's why I find the book is flawed in concept because it makes assertions but does not go far enough to support them. Part 2 and Part 3 of this book should have been scrapped. If you want to know about the life of John Calvin, write another book, read another book. If you want to know the tributes or opinions of others across different denominations, fields, countries, over the centuries, millennia, uh, or actually not millennia, but over the centuries, then write another book, read another book. But for this book, all 112 pages of it, it would be good if you wrote as if you are John Calvin. Now, he was an irresistible force because his top legal mind made theological arguments that were just indisputably built on the Bible. It is so difficult to actually respond in, uh, in the face of John Calvin's uh, magnificent arguments. So, be like Calvin Make the case. And if the book was reworked, I would say it needs a good editor. Let me just give you one example. Try, I will try to be quick. When I read part two of this book, The Life of John Calvin, I thought the tone overall was just simply too positive. Not saying that we need to find fault with the man, but there are known issues with Calvin. Servitus, anyone? I mean, I have heard a good defense for Calvin with regards to Servitus. But in this book, it's as if Servetus was never born. Nothing ever happened. Calvin did not do <laughs> what he did to Servetus. And that's okay. It is, after all, the writer's prerogative to leave some things out. And in the case of Servetus, if you can't explain the whole story, it might be best not to mention him at all. The irritation is the book does mention Servetus, but never bothers to explain who he is. In part 3, we have a John Wesley uh, section where he gives a, quote, uh, a tribute to Calvin. I quote, this is John Wesley's words, I believe Calvin was a great instrument of God and that he was a wise and pious man. But I cannot but advise those who love his memory to let Servetus alone. Yet if anyone resolves to understand the whole affair, he may consult a learned account by a Dr. Chandler of London. End quote. Now isn't that a teaser? Wesley tells us to leave Servetus alone. But we can't leave it alone now because who is Servetus? If you're going to mention him in a book, and if you're going to quote him, 
then you should describe who is servitus and why this is an issue that prevents people from admiring or commending, in, a John, in a Wesley's case, the memory of John Calvin. John Wesley saw that it was a potential hindrance, stumbling block to, to, for, for Christians to admire the man. So if John Calvin, sorry, if John Wesley had to mention Servetus, why is Servetus not mentioned in this book? Now, I have been highly critical of the book. Is there anything good about it? Well, it's short and it's free. Or at least it was free in January. And if it's no longer free by the time you're hearing this, then you have one less reason to get the book. If you really love John Calvin, then you would just read anything that has John Calvin. And in that sense, well, this book would be for you because you get a different sense of who he is. Other than that, I just cannot recommend this book. I recommend you get another book. Maybe another one by David Hall. I do not dismiss his passion and knowledge of John Calvin. Maybe his other books in the Calvin 500 series are better than today's one. He has written so many Calvin books. Hopefully, some of them are actually better. Uh, very good. Uh, very well written. Maybe today's book was simply an ill-advised idea that came out half-baked. All I know is, this is not the book to inform or excite anyone on John Calvin's legacy in the modern world. This is a Reading and Readers review of The Legacy of John Calvin by David Hall. 112 pages published by PNR Publishing in June 2008. Available in Amazon Kindle for $7.99 and available in Logos for free. Free for January. Thank you for listening.